welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. So as we're going through our summer series on the different parables of Jesus, we have a parable in which it's spoken in the context of a meal, and it's focused on a meal. And it's very intentional that he is choosing the imagery that he is choosing in the context in which he is speaking. Before our reading in the gospel reading today, there's um, kind of some dialogue and dynamics that are happening around um, this meal with Jesus. It says that he was sitting at the table at a feast, at at a banquet type meal that was put on by one of the rulers of the Pharisees. So this was a very powerful and influential man. Would have held very high social, but also religious esteem. And so he's sitting with all of these Pharisees, these, these theologians, these, these, these pious men of the day. And he was invited out to the meal. And even though amongst the Pharisees Jesus was suspect, they were still feeling him out. And Jesus was also, though, becoming a man who was gaining notoriety. And the Pharisees were challenging Jesus, trying to see where he was at, but also, I think, holding out possibility that, that he could possibly bring further fervency to their movement. And so after he was having a conversation with those who were attending the banquet concerning first healing on the Sabbath and how they perceived that and the act of healing on the Sabbath and then challenging them directly. He wasn't the most polite dinner guest. You usually don't show up at a dinner as a guest and then start challenging and questioning the actions of the people who invited you. But Jesus does that and he starts questioning how they were clamoring for a better seat and a higher position at the table, how they're looking for a position of greater significance and honor. And then right before we get our reading today, we have Jesus telling the ruler of the Pharisees, one who was leading, you have to think of the Pharisees as, I mean, they were the conservatives of the day. They They were the Bible people. And yet, He tells them, when you throw a party, you should have invited the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And immediately following that statement, we have the beginning of our reading where a man proclaims, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Which kind of seems odd. And now we're not certain whether or not this is him trying to cozy up with Jesus and and make a proclamation or this was an outburst. 
But more likely than not, this was a challenge to what Jesus was saying. Especially because that is usually almost always the case before Jesus goes into his parable. Is somebody questions him or makes a statement that he sees behind what they're trying to get at. And doesn't address directly the debate and challenge they're trying to bring him into, but instead he tells a story. So in many ways, I think what, what is happening here would be like someone who is at a party and um, let's say they're a very progressive professor who is going on a long, eloquent rants about the evils of America. And then somebody else, after he finishes his statement, stands up and says, God bless America, <laughs> waiting to see how that professor is going to respond. Is he going to agree? Disagree? And I think that that is what is going on because this Pharisee and all of the Pharisees, being well-educated men, would have known that Jesus was not just speaking about social mores of the day. I'm trying to give some, some pointers on proper etiquette on your guest list. But instead, they would have known that Jesus was making statements and alluding to something greater. He was alluding to the great banquet feast of the inaugurated messianic kingdom of God. A feast that we read about in our Old Testament lesson in Isaiah 25. And it's interesting when you read that because it, it, it speaks of how in this great feast, at the consummation of the kingdom of God, where God is restoring all things, that all people will be invited. And yet also in that reading, it does speak of the destruction of the old systems. Old boundary walls and kingdoms. And this was the hot topic of the day. One of the focused areas of debate. They were arguing and trying to make sense of who was in and who was out. When the Messiah did come and God did establish his kingdom, who would have a seat at the banquet feast? And who would be rejected? Who would be destroyed when the old system passes away? And to his audience, Jesus' statement right before our reading would occlude them in to the fact that he was alluding to the debate that they were debating at that time. The Qumran community, which you may know of their work, it was the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered They were a religious group that were contemporaries a little bit before Jesus and during the time of Jesus. They they thought that Israel was so jacked up that it couldn't be redeemed and the Messiah wasn't going to come because everything was so messed up. So they ran to the Dead Sea and created kind of this like, like Neo, not Neo, it's old. I don't know why I said Neo, but monastic type community in which then they were seeking a level of purity and holiness that then would usher in the kingdom of God. And while they did that, they wrote, Scrolls after scrolls and commentary after commentary. And what we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls is a commentary, multiple commentaries on Isaiah and commentaries on this particular passage about the great banquet feast. And they make clear that in this feast, the Gentiles would not be included 
But also, in the commentaries, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it writes, Also, no one will attend that is smitten in his flesh, paralyzed in his feet or hands, or lame, or blind or deaf or dumb, or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. Or in other words, not only will the Gentiles be excluded, but those who have a sign upon them of God's disfavor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind will be excluded. And though this was the Qumran community, they are reflecting a mentality and an attitude that was prominent during Jesus' time. And so his, his choice of these are the people you need to invite would include them in that he's making a statement about something greater than a dinner party. And also we get a little bit more information on how uh, first century Jews would have viewed and understood this promised great banquet feast of the Messiah, the Targum, which was an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament. But it wasn't like a word for word translation. It was more of a paraphrase. If you're familiar with Bible translations, it would have been like our contemporary um, message Bible or the living Bible. This is how the Targum understands this passage. It does say that all will be invited, but then it writes, although they, which are the Gentiles and unfaithful Jews, supposed it as an honor, it will be a shame for them. And great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. So their paraphrase is, yes, Isaiah, all people will come but many are being brought to this banquet to then be destroyed. Similarly, the book of Enoch, which was written in the second century, wasn't understood as scripture, but it does reveal to us a little bit of the sensibility and mentality leading into the time of Jesus. The book of Enoch, when talking about this great banquet feast, states that the Gentiles will be invited, but then the angel of death will appear and destroy them all. So you can kind of get the sensibility and mentality that was, was carried by, by the religious elites during Jesus' day. And seeing the words that he's speaking, they want to draw him in to this debate that is raging amongst the Jewish people. But instead, Jesus tells a story. I think he tells a story in a manner in which he doesn't enter into the debate. He doesn't play their game. But he tells a story that reveals the issue in the heart that is behind the debate itself. So real quick, understanding the story, especially within its cultural context, we have the story that you have a wealthy man throwing a feast. We know that he was a wealthy man because it says that it was a great banquet. Secondly, he was inviting many, many people And he had to have had the wealth to be able to provide for those people. And there's also the added aspect that he does have a servant. Um, If anybody has their own servant, it's generally a clue that they're not poor. And so he has his servant. And then what we have going on here, we might miss this in our culture, but is is the common practice of a double invitation. 
We kind of do this a little bit when we do big, big parties like a, a, a wedding banquet. We send out an RSVP to kind of gauge how many people are coming. And then you send like the, the invitation of like, okay, here's the wedding feast. But what was different during this time is they would send out an RSVP because they needed to know how many people were planning on attending this great banquet. Because during that time, there was no refrigeration. There were no doggy bags. Like you couldn't just create a ton of food. And if you'd created too much, then just save it for later and throw it in the freezer because the cookie trays were too big. Like whatever was made had to have been eaten. And so they needed to know how many animals to slaughter, how many barrels of wine to prepare. But also because of the, of the nature of the time, you didn't just go to the supermarket and then order up your food and then cook it during the day. It, you had to have lengthy preparation and some of it was dependent upon weather and everything else. But you had to go and you had to slaughter your animals and then you had to hang the animals and then you had to skin the animals and then you had to butcher the animals and you had to prepare all the other things. And so whenever they asked how many people would come, there wasn't a, an exact like date and time. Like you're going to be here at 11 o'clock on Saturday the 14th. So instead, they would send out that general invitation, and then they would send out word that finally everything is prepared for people to come. But whenever the time had come for the great banquet, those who were assumed to come to the banquet, those who themselves said they were going to be in the banquet, all of a sudden had some interesting excuses. The one said that he had just bought a field and he needed to go see it. Seems reasonable. Only problem is, is in that time, nobody would have ever bought a field without seeing it. I mean, if you know anything about the region, most of the area is arid, rocky, mountainous. Very little of the land is actually usable for farming. You don't just buy land blind and then go check it out. You would go and you would check out the land to make sure that it could be farmed, that it could be useful. And then similarly, you have someone who says, I just bought a bunch of yokes of oxen. And if it, notice it says here that he bought yokes. It means teams of two. They're considered a yoke once they've been trained to be able to work together. It's not that he bought a bunch of oxen that he was going to go and raise himself and train. He is buying what he believes to be already prepared and trained oxen to be able to put to work on his land. You don't do that without first checking them out. Without making sure that they've been trained. Because a yoke of oxen are useless if they don't work together and if they work apart. Then you have the last one where the guy says, I married a wife. This one at least seems a little bit more legit. Because in my mind, when I read it, I first think like, oh, the dude just got married. Like, it doesn't say he just got married. He just says, I have a wife. (laughs) And then, interestingly, he doesn't even give the pleasantries of, like, please excuse me. He's just like, yeah, I got a wife. I ain't coming. So what we have is quite ridiculous excuses. They're almost 
done in a manner in which they're so ridiculous that in the first century that the host would have seen them as a mockery of his intelligence and a mockery of him. An Iraqi philosopher, priest, and theologian in the 11th century, Alvin Al-Taib, who actually has written the probably still the most influential commentary on the New Testament that was written in Arabic, he comments on this, understanding the culture of the time, and says, here the master of the house became angry because he knew that the excuses were vain and that their apologies were actually insults. And so the master of the house is furious, and then something strange happens. His anger turns into grace. And he sends his servant first to the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, those within the city, those who would have been seen and understood as outcasts, those who they would have believed were the way they were because they were smitten by God. The very people that the righteous assumed were going to be excluded from the banquet. And yet these ones who were in the city would have known of the banquet and would have never, ever, ever thought that they would have a seat there. They knew who they were. They knew how society saw them. And so when they heard the invitation, the way the story goes, they quickly jump on the opportunity and take their seat at the banquet table. But then also it says, after that, after they have all come in, there's still room. So he says, go to the highways and the hedges. What he's saying is, is go to those who are outside the city gate. Those who are outsiders and foreigners. Those who are not even allowed in the holy city. Most commentators throughout history has understood this as referring to the Gentiles. And it says with them, though, that he needed to compel them to come in. He would have needed to compel them because they would have known that they aren't welcome. And it probably would have been hard for them to, to trust this invitation. I mean, if I was a Gentile during that time and I got wind of the Targum or wind of, of, of Enoch, and they have this great story about the banquet in which the Gentiles are going to be invited in just so the angel of death can show up and kill me. Like, if somebody, if a Jew then showed up and be like, come to this banquet, I'd be like, yeah, no, I, I don't really have any interest in showing up at your banquet. And so it says that they needed to be, to be convinced, to be compelled. But this master, this master was not going to sit back. But he was going to be lavish and active in the pursuit of offering this gracious invitation. And we, so we see kind of what is happening within the narrative. And when we understand that, you can begin to see, especially in the time, what Jesus is doing with this parable. Jesus is flipping the contemporary religious narrative of the day. 
Those who knew of the banquet and assumed their invitation rejected it when the time comes. The Pharisees are not dumb. They would have known that he was alluding to them. And then those who assumed that they would be excluded, those who the Jews considered smitten, unfaithful by, by, by the pious and influential, possibly even including in this group the Samaritans, are now the ones that are so excited about the invite that they immediately come in. And the Gentiles are reluctant, but eventually compelled to come. Those who the religious leaders assumed were in end up out of the banquet. And those who are assumed to be excluded are the ones who have the seat. And first and foremost, Jesus is telling this parable as a picture of his messianic mission. Jesus, in some ways, is the servant of this parable. His father has been preparing a feast. He has been preparing a kingdom. And those who were faithful Jews knew of it and were anticipating it. They knew it was coming. They didn't know when it was going to happen. And then whenever it was ready and the Messiah had come, the servant comes to proclaim, all is ready. You may now come in. Then all of a sudden... We see through the gospel narratives that those who you would assume would be there make excuses, reject the servant, reject reject the Messiah who has made the offer. And ironically, as you read the gospels, as then Jesus proclaims the good news for the poor and the lame, for the outcasted, for the sinners, for the broken. Proclaiming good news for even the Roman oppressor, and the Gentile pagan. Those who rejected his message became infuriated because of who he was welcoming in. Because of the generous grace of the invite. But also, in some ways, Jesus is the host. If you notice in verse 24, he says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. says this ultimate messianic banquet of the Lord is his banquet that he's inviting them to. But by flipping this contemporary narrative that was happening, he condemns the attitude of those at the table with him, the attitude that was behind the debate that they wanted to draw him in. An attitude of assumed superiority, of a self-righteous sense that they are entitled to a place at the table. That they will be included because they are superior to all these others whom will be excluded. So as I've been saying as we've been walking through these parables, we have to ask the question then, where are we in the parable? With this one, I can't answer for anybody. 
This might be any one of the three groups. But what it really ultimately comes down to is the disposition one carries. So the disposition of, of being entitled and deserving, relying on a sense of righteousness and superiority to others, a sense of social significance. that gives us the invite to the banquet feast. Or is it reluctance? Unsure of whether or not this invite is actually true. Whether it speaks of a feast that will never happen from a master that doesn't exist and is just um, wish fulfillment of ignorant people. Or surprised by grace. Accepting the invitation readily, yet still shocked over and over and over again that we've been granted a seat the great banquet of the Lord. And if you notice in this, the invitation is universal. The invitation still goes to the self-righteous, the elites, the ones who end up rejecting it, to the outcasts, to the pagan sinner. It is an invitation that goes out to all. But the reception of the invitation is contingent upon the one who recognizes that apart from grace, that they should be excluded. That are grateful that they have an invite and that they have a seat. And I think for us, as we gather today on Sunday, as we gather every Sunday to go and to celebrate the Eucharist, the Lord's table, It's a practice that the church has been doing since its formation. And it's a reminder of this very reality because the, 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 the Holy Communion, the Eucharist, it points back to the Lord's Supper, to, to, to the Last Supper, I mean. The, where he said, this is my body, this is my blood to the disciples. But it also points forward to the feast that he says that I will not partake of this until I partake of it in my kingdom. Speaking of this great banquet feast that is his feast. And so in many ways it draws us back to commune with Christ in that upper room, but it also points us forward as a foretaste of the great banquet feast that we all by grace have an invite and a seat. And this feast right now is not a feast of a fatted calf and super high-end wine. But instead, a feast that was prepared for us by his own body broken and his own blood shed on our behalf. And it's an invite that goes to all but all don't accept it. That's why within the tradition of the church, historically, all are invited, but only those who have received the sacrament of baptism are to partake. 
The reason being is because baptism is a representation and it is a manifestation of God's external grace that is shown towards us, cleansing us of our sins and making us worthy to come to his table. And if one thinks that they do not need that cleansing, then they are in the position of those who think that they're already entitled. And what's interesting is the Qumran community is somewhat correct about the great banquet feast. There will not be the lame and the crippled, the dumb and the blind. Not that those in this life who are smitten and outcasted by society will not be there. It's just once we are there because we have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, there will no longer be sickness and sorrow. That in that, all of the effects, the disastrous effects that divide us and leave us alone and isolated will be removed. And so in that day, there will be no lame. There will be no blind. We're at that table. And I love within the liturgy, like our tradition within our, the liturgy of our tradition, something that I think is very important is that before we come to the table, we pray this prayer. It's called the prayer of humble access. We do not presume to come to this, your table. It's a reminder that all are invited, but also that our invitation to a seat at his table is an invitation of absolute grace. That we are not worthy to be there. We are like the poor, the lame, the beggar, the outcast, the one who is in the alleyways who are cast out of the city. We have no place at some rich man's banquet. And yet, as we acknowledge that, he then tells us, yes, but I have made you worthy. Come, join my feast. I think this is an important thing that we need to remember is to hold together something I, I, I value that, we, that, that our Lutheran brothers and sisters have emphasized well and greatly is, is law and gospel together. Because when we forget the gospel, we tend to create a law that we think we can keep, a law that makes us feel entitled and superior to those who are not keeping the law as we have made the law out to be. And usually when we forget the gospel, we don't keep all the law. We choose the things that we don't struggle as much with and the things that, you know, kind of mark our community so that then we can feel that we have a rightful place at the table. But all of those who break those laws that we don't struggle with, but they do, are now outcasted and we are superior. The problem is, though, is when you forget the law, we end up doing the same thing, thinking that we are entitled by something within ourselves, because ultimately, we're all good people, right? I mean, I'm here because I'm, I'm kind of wonderful, and we miss the fact that our being invited to the feast is a radical act of grace. You know what happens whenever it becomes an entitlement instead of an act of grace? You begin to become flippant about it. And it means little. And you're like, you know what? I've been married for a year and a half now, so I've got a wife. That's been enough excuse. I'm not going to go. But when it's held together, we recognize over and over and again how radical the invitation is that we might have a But also those who are in Christ 
In some ways, even though Christ was the servant, we become the servant. As Christ commissioned the apostles, and the apostles commissioned the church, that we are to go out and invite all to this messianic feast. To invite all to the Lord's table, not by coercion, but by compelling others. That even though this grace that we speak of seems too good to be true, the table is set and the invitation is real. It's not a trick. (laughs) But the Master is just that gracious. So today, as we prepare for the celebration of the sacrament of Holy Communion, we will confess our unworthiness, our uncleanness. And then immediately after that, we will be reminded of the absolution that we have in Christ, the cleansing grace that we have received through our Lord. And then we will pray. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Reminding us that the invitation is for all, not because we are worthy to sit at the Lord's table, but because he is gracious beyond measure. He is so gracious that he does not wait for us to come to him, but he goes out to us to the back roads and the alleyways, to the slums and the pretentious estates, to invite us, to compel us to take our seat at the great messianic banquet of our Lord and God. That we might receive from the one who has come to bring us the good news that by grace we have been invited and we have been given a seat at the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords table. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue, thy freedom.